You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. Today's a guest speaker. We have Kenan Saleh, co-founder at Hello Cars that got acquired by Lyft. And in this episode, we'll talk about this, the acquisition by Lyft, you know, how it feels to be acquired by Lyft, how do you get there, and most importantly, the PR in the fundraising. So what does it even mean to have a PR during the fundraising process? So Ken, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Hello Cars. Hello, uh, thanks for having me. As you said, my name's Kinan Sala. I was co-founder and CEO of, of Halo Cars. We started the company in uh, the end of 2019, and it was, sorry, the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019. Uh, it was a rooftop rideshare advertising business. So we were putting screens, digital screens, on top of rideshare cars. Uh, if you've ever been to New York and you saw taxis, the, a lot of the yellow cab taxis had ads on top, we, we, we were doing a very similar model, but with rideshare cars. Um, we were one of, the, one of the first companies to, to do this on rideshare. So we did that. We we launched first in Philadelphia because uh, I was a student at at UPenn at the time when we started the company. We started there. We moved to New York um, because it was a bigger market and we wanted to focus on it full time. And we did that for a little bit less than a year. Uh, and then we got acquired by Lyft in November of 2019. So not that long ago. Um, but yeah, that's the summary of our our journey. I think you were supposed to say that you're speaking on your behalf, not on behalf of Lyft. Oh yeah, yeah. Let me one one tidbit here. Uh, this is I'm speaking about on behalf of myself, um, not on behalf of Lyft, which is where I work now, obviously. Um, yeah. Thank you for reminding. That's me. that's what happens when you start working for a big company like Lyft. So <laughs> it's completely fine. We'll understand that. But let's talk about that acquisition. How it happened? Did you actually prepare for it from day one? You were like, okay, here are our potential acquirers, and then one day you're like, okay, we're big enough. We're going to reach out to them, and they're going to acquire us. Or did they just email you? You know, hey guys, we've seen your growth. Uh, we want to acquire you. So how did this yeah. happen? It wasn't at all. We were not searching for it. We did not go out and seek it. We, when you're when you're building a company and at the beginning when you're thinking about it, you do naturally think about who are the players that could be the potential potential acquirers. So for our company, it was a rideshare advertising business. So we knew if there was going to be someone who's going to buy it, likely to be either a rideshare company, Uber, Lyft, or it was going to be an advertising company, maybe Google, Facebook, so on. And we knew that from the beginning, but we were never, we were never searching for it. <clears throat> we were, we actually, so it was very early when we got acquired. We did not expect anybody to be interested in, in buying our company. So we were just focused on building. We were trying to build um, the most compelling company and get the most traction that we could. And we were approached by Lyft unexpectedly. And they made us an offer. Uh, we considered it and ultimately we decided to go for it, but we did not. It was a surprise to us. We didn't seek it out at all. Nice. So how how did they reach out to you? So was it like a random email from Lyft saying like, hey, we want to acquire you or we're considering acquiring you? How, how does this happen? I'm just curious. Yeah, it was actually so not too, not too dissimilar from what you described. It was a cold LinkedIn message. It wasn't actually to me. It was uh, to my co-founder. Uh, uh, I founded it with um, two co-founders from, from my school. And there was a message to them, and it wasn't it wasn't um, hey we want to acquire you, it was 
hey, we're interested in what you're doing. Can we have a chat? And then you, we did a few of those chats, which are you get to know the people, they ask you about what you're doing, you ask them about what they're doing. We talked a little bit about maybe we can partner in, in some aspect. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't talk at all about acquisition until many meetings in, probably like, I don't know the exact number, but I think five, six, a lot of meetings in before uh, we even started talking about that. And that's probably what they were thinking about from the beginning. But they mm -hmm. didn't tell us. So they were just learning more about us. And then when they decided that they wanted to, they let us know. So we were, that's what part of why we were surprised. We were talking, we, we were talking about a partnership. We were, we were excited about it. Obviously we were like thinking about how we we're going to partner. And then one day they were like, oh, we want to buy you. I was like, oh, that was unexpected. Great. So how did it feel? You know, you were basically like a year, year and a half in the company, I think. When we you... were less than a, we were less than a year in. So... Oh, less than a year in. That's yeah. that's really impressive. So how did it feel? You know, how did it feel to get that we want to acquire you message? It was it was good. So it was a really, really exciting thing. It was I mean for me at least it was extremely exciting. For co founder my co founders, I'm sure it was as well. Um extremely surprising. None of us expected it. We were very exciting. It's very validating when a big company believes in what you're doing, especially a company like Lyft. We all use Lyft. We all know Lyft. Um, it's a pretty famous company for how big it is. So it was it was amazing. And it was the first, you know, right when you get it, it's really exciting. But then after that, you have to think about, should I take it? What are, right. are, are these good terms? Um, should I negotiate? Should I walk away? So it becomes more serious and you lose the jubilation pretty quickly because you have to deal with more. <laughs> right. Yeah, more of the dirty work of it, but it's it's an amazing thing. I mean, for anybody who's had an offer, it's extremely flattering. It's a great feeling. Nice. Yeah, I'm happy for you. So what was your major takeaway? You know, we'll skip this happy part. Uh, many of you who are listening to Fundraising Radio for quite a while, you know that the content that we're producing here is a little bit dark because startup world is dark. So let's jump straight into the, you know, not the fun part where you just learned about the acquisition, but to the part where you actually started thinking about that acquisition more in depth. So what was your major takeaway from it? So now that you're looking back at it, would you like to, I don't know, negotiate better or, I don't know, wait for like a year more until you accept the acquisition or was there something that you would like to change in it? There are, there are some things. So something in general for startups is it's usually better to be acquired later because it means you have more time to build your business and develop your company and you'll sell for a higher price, basically. You'll be more valuable the longer you can wait. Part of what a lot of corp dev departments at big companies are supposed to do is they're supposed to find things before they become too big and before they become too expensive to buy. So for, for a startup, if the more you can develop before you sell, um, the better. That's, that's one thing. Sometimes you don't have a choice. So sometimes you, know, you get offers when you do or there's certain situations that because of the maybe competitive landscape, you you know you sort of have to, and you don't think you have a chance to stay longer. Uh, so in that case, obviously you know you need to do what you what you have to do. But that's one thing. I would try for for any startup. I would not try and build to get acquired as soon as possible. It's not going to be the best outcome. You should build to create the most long-lasting company, uh, and really really focus on building a, a scalable solid company. Um, and then at that time. You'll be very valuable if you get an acquisition offer. People will be interested because it's a successful company. And if you get an offer, it'll be for a much higher amount. So pushing it off as much as possible is good. Um, 
obviously we, you know, we did, we got acquired very soon. We were like less than a year in. Um, and we had reasons for that as well. So we, you know, we had to consider the offer. We had to consider our competitors. We had to consider the general landscape and things. So for us, we, we decided it was, it was the right decision to do it early. But um, that's, that's what I would say. I would say if, if you have the opportunity to early on to reject offers and you're really confident in your business, I would reject early and then wait until later, ideally. Right. I think like if I'm thinking about myself, I would probably not be able to reject the offer because it's just it's just so cool to claim that you have exited the company. You know, it's tough. So <laughs> it, depends, it depends on your your risk. appetite. So if you're very confident that right. you can build a successful company by yourself and you can become much bigger than you are now, mm -hmm. then you shouldn't. For the most part, you shouldn't sell. You should say we're, we're going to be in a year. We're going to be even more. We're going to be even bigger, even more successful. So you should wait. If there's other things, if you think, well, in a year, the space is going to look really different, or if right, you can, right. say, if something like, well, um, we think that sometimes there's strategic things where it's, well, we don't want to compete with this company, uh, so we're just going to sell to them and be part of them. And there's all sorts of things like that. But if you can, it's better to push off. Right, right. So speaking of, you know, building something that's going to last long and, you know, destroy all the competition. On our pre-interview call, you mentioned that you specifically took plenty of time to build this, you know, strong company. I mean, strong team specifically uh, yeah. that had the necessary uh, skill set. How did you approach that problem? So, did you like build out the list of things you need in tech, business, marketing, and all that stuff, and actually picked people by yourself, or how did that happen? Yeah, that's the, that's sort of what it was. I thought about um, when we were very early, starting very early on. I thought about the different sort of um, I don't know what to call them, but the different groups or the different parts of our business. And we sort of had, we had drivers, which was we needed drivers in order to put our screens on top of. This was kind of the supply side. So we had a whole driver side of our business. Then we had a whole advertiser side of our business, which is the people who are buying the advertisers. So this is the demand side. We had demand, supply. We were kind of like a marketplace in that sense, but that's two separate areas of the business. And then we had um, product which was we needed to build the hardware and the software. So you can maybe, you can maybe separate hard, or product into hardware and software. Mm -hmm. So those are sort of the four areas that I thought we need somebody, one co-founder to be an expert and to be the leader in those kind of areas. And that's what I was thinking of. I was lucky because I had friends who were really good at all of those. Um, so there was four co-founders, including me originally. Two of them were friends I had known previously. One of them had a ton of hardware experience, um, was mechanical engineer, did robotics, all sorts of stuff. So uh, had the hardware experience that was needed. Uh, I focused on the software, I did all the software for the team. And then one of my other friends did all the driver stuff. So um, his father was an Uber driver. He, he was very familiar with uh, Uber and Lyft drivers and what motivates them, how to talk to them and so on. So we had like the three parts of the business, but the one that we lacked is the demand side. We didn't have anybody who, had been selling advertisements or selling to advertising agencies or advertising brands, or at least I didn't have a friend. So um, I recruited somebody that I met. I basically, I was looking around the campus. We we're at university, so that was one thing that helped. I was looking around the campus for somebody who could do that. And I met somebody at an event where I was pitching the company and someone came up and said, I have, I have a ton of experience at this. I worked at Google. 
I sold ads to, I worked with ad agencies and had the experience that was necessary and knew, knew what they were doing. So um, I said, great. We talked for a little bit more to make sure that it was a good fit and that they would like the team, the team would like him and so forth. But uh, after a few weeks, not even a lot, it was like two weeks, they joined the team officially. And there it was. So we had, from the very beginning, we had a, a co-founding team that covered all aspects of the business. And we didn't need to hire anybody for a long time. We had interns in the summer, but we, ne we actually never made a, a full-time hire because we didn't need it. Uh, we, had, we had all the areas covered. We didn't need to, a lot of people hire like, external shops, especially development shops. They don't have a technical person on the team. They'll, they'll hire someone to do all the coding for them. We never needed to do that. So it was great. We were basically self-sufficient with just our co-founding team. Nice, nice. So from my understanding, you basically got this co-founding team, which was self-sufficient. That's really cool. And right away, you basically went out and decided to go out and raise some money for the company because you felt like your team is big enough and good enough to cover everything, right? Yeah, mostly. We... For the first few months, um, from January 2019 to May 2019, we were all still in school. So we were student entrepreneurs at the time. We were doing school and we were doing uh, Halo as well. And so we were in Philadelphia. That's where our school was. That's where we were also working on the business. And we had not raised money yet. We raised our, our seed round in May, so right when we finished, uh, when we graduated, so when we finished school. And in that meantime, we were doing uh, as much validation as we could. So we scrapped together um, our money, personal money, and then we also got there's some awards that the university game gave, uh, basically free money to students. So we were able to get some money from the university for free. We were able to put in some of our own money, not a ton, a very small amount. Um, we're talking about like a few thousand, not you know a ton, of, a lot of money. And what we did is we bought like one, we bought one unit, one rooftop digital screen. We put it on one driver in Philadelphia and we showed our own ads. We showed Halo ads for our website. And then we ran a test basically. We tracked how many people came to our website and then we tracked, this was where the car drove. And then we looked where do people search for us on Google? And we could see overlap of where the car drove is where people were searching for us. So we started to get, we started to get traction and tried to run as many tests that would validate what we're doing with as little amount of money as possible. Basically, yeah, we, we whatever you could do with like a couple thousand dollars, that's what we were doing. And then we ran those tests for as long as we could. We even ran some free advertisements for local businesses. There was a, there was a local coffee shop nearby. We ran an advertisement for them, all of this for free. And we did it on um, a few cars, like less than five cars. So it was tiny, tiny scale. And then in May, when we had done all this, all this work, we had built out, we had proven that this could work. We had proven that we could do it from a hardware and software perspective. Then we went and raised money. So we didn't have much then, but we had a lot more than just, you know, an idea and a pitch deck. We had a product we could point to, or at least a prototype we could point to. We had early test campaigns that we had done with some early results. So we had quite a bit then. Uh, and then we also had a team that we thought was very compelling for this problem. So we, we raised at May or in May. And once we raised, we raised half a million dollars in May, and then we moved to New York and then we started, we took it, that was full time by now. Nice, nice. So I'm curious, where was that point when you decided, you know, it's time to go into this full time and actually go and raise money? Was it right after you graduated college? Yeah. Was that the breaking point, basically? It was actually just school based. So because we were we were students and then we had classes and stuff, um, 
I was also I was about to graduate. I was a few months away from graduating, so I, I don't I wasn't gonna drop out in the middle. So I was just like, right. I have a few more months. Let's just finish it. Once we finish, then we all literally like a few days after my graduation, we packed everything into a U-Haul and we shipped it all to New York. To New York. <laughs> uh, and then we were we were full time, completely full time. From then on, we lived in the same house. We worked together. We did that for the next four months until we required. <laughs> next four months until you required. That's that sounds really cool. Uh, well, yeah. congrats on that. Uh, that Thanks. that's a pretty epic story. I wish you dropped out. That would be an even better story. But yeah. it was still a smart move. I mean, dropping out two months before you you're done with the university. It's not not the smartest move. Um, so I'll say my my co-founders did drop out. Um, my co-founders were so one of them was an MBA, first year MBA. Um, didn't finish the MBA, dropped out. Another one was a undergraduate, a sophomore undergraduate, mm-hmm. dropped out before finishing. Nice. So for me, it was, it was more of, a, I was so close to graduating, I was like a couple months away, that I was just going to finish it and be done with it. I should probably bring in your co-founders instead, so, you know, it's... Yeah, and have, have dropped out. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, but let's do a little bit more time traveling this time, and... If you could go back in time and change something in your fundraising process or in the stage when you decided to fundraise or like in the way you talk to investors or whatever yeah. there was to change, what would it be? Yeah, there's a few things. So one of them is I would talk to more people. This is a mistake we made. I think it's a mistake probably everybody makes. And there are so many investors in the world that it's just anybody you would be shocked at how many investors there are between angel investors micro vcs actual vcs and then there's even there's some like private equity groups that sometimes do early stage stuff so there are just there's so so many investors in the world and it's sort of a numbers game you know if you if you reach out to a large number um it's likely that a few of them will say yes and it's a little bit it's a little bit random some people will like it for whatever reason, other people won't like it. And uh, you just need to talk to as many people as possible. Get get the widest array, and then you can decide who you want to go with. We right. didn't talk to that. We, we were pretty narrow. We talked to the people we knew. We talked to VCs in Philadelphia, in New York, the people that were accessible to us. We talked to angel investors, uh, sort of friends and family angel investors as well. And we raised money. It was that's It's okay. But uh, I just realized afterwards how much more there was. Uh, we could have talked to so many more people. We probably wouldn't have raised more money because we raised exactly how much we wanted to. But we could have gotten a lot more term sheets. Um, maybe we could have gotten better terms. I'm not sure. But it would have been easier. It definitely would have been easier if we had more options on the t- options on the table. Absolutely. That's actually that's great advice, and many people ignore it, specifically early stage founders. Whenever they see interest from one investor, like serious interest, they're like, "Oh, we're we're just going with them." Uh, I personally yeah. that mistake screwed up uh so yeah the other the other thing with that is a lot of people will take too much too much feedback or listen too much to the advice of the single investor Uh, they'll get negative feedback from one investor and it'll just demoralize them and they'll want to go and change the business model or sometimes vcs will say like i like this but you should change this part of the business model and they'll and they'll listen to it so and for the most part i would say it's usually not good advice because investors they don't know they don't know the business like the entrepreneur. They're not living it every single day. They're there to give advice, but um, they don't know better than the entrepreneur. So people, I, I think they take VC's advice too much and they put too much credibility into it. 
Right. And they also, just on a small sample size, they'll talk to a few investors and the, they'll, they'll say, I talked to three investors, none of them wanted to invest. So I don't think this is a fundable idea. And that's right. crazy. There's, there are thousands and thousands of investors that have completely different risk appetites and preferences and whatever. There's, if, if you have, you know, uh, a good sample size, then I'm sure if you, know, you can get a better read on whether or not investors like it, like three is not enough. You should talk to at least 10, 20 before you can make any judgment on, is this a fundable idea? Is it a good idea or not? Right, right. Yeah, that's definitely good advice. You know, numbers games sometimes works. Uh, I mean, most of the time it works. Uh, but here we're moving on to the part where you got much more interest after you close your round. So on our pre-interview call, you mentioned that after you close your round and you know you started scaling, you know more and more cars were driving on those uh, things on roof uh, with Halo advertisement, and you know VCs are seeing this and they're like, oh, Halo, I should Google it. And then you see, they see that this is a startup, they might invest and they start reaching out to you, but you still did not accept any additional offers. Why didn't you decide to raise you know, some additional capital just to make sure that you're, that you're safe? Yeah, there's a lot of good points in, in this here. I'll first start off with, I think the best way for people to fundraise or for startups to fundraise is to raise as much as you need for a period of time, be in fundraising mode, and get all the money that you need. And then for the next however many months, like six months, 12 months, however much you raised for, um, I would just be in completely building mode and not worry about fundraising at all. I wouldn't, don't take investor meetings. <clears throat> don't be meeting with you know, um, random people who email you, all that kind of stuff, just be focused on building. Uh, I think that's that's the best way um, in order to, to really build and, and focus uh, on what you're doing. Otherwise it's easy to get distracted with all sorts of things. And that's what we did. So we raised $500,000. We knew $500,000 was enough for the rest of the year. That was the point. We were raising money for the rest of the year. We didn't want to raise again until after that. And then once we raised, um, that was it. We were in building mode. So we got a lot of emails from people as we started getting more traction. LinkedIn messages, email, all sorts of stuff. Saying, hey, this is really exciting. Um, they're, from, they're from big VC firms, like pretty well-known VC firms. Uh, we want to meet, you know, we like to hear what you're doing. And we would always re respond like, sorry, we're, we're focused on building right now. We're not worried about fundraising, but when we raise again, we'll definitely reach out to you. And we would keep a list of all the people that, that reached out. So when we wanted to fundraise again, we, we would go reach out with them. So that was, that was the main reason why we just didn't need the money. We didn't need the money. We didn't want the money. We were focused on building. Um, so that was why we, we didn't take on any follow on investment. We had plans to raise again at the end of the year. So like I said, we raised 500,000. We expected that to last us for the year. And we were expecting to start raising again at the end of the year. So then we'd have more money obviously for the next year. And we, so that was our plan. We were making a list of every single person that reached out in the meantime, so that when we went into fundraising mode, <clears throat> we would do it really focused where we'd have like two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever, where we would meet with every single investor that was on that list. All we would be focused on was, was raising money. We didn't actually get there because we got acquired for the end of the year. So yeah, we didn't, we didn't get to that point, but that was the plan. So staging it like that intentionally is in my opinion, the best way to do it. Otherwise um, it's very easy to just get swayed and distracted, take a meeting here, take a meeting there. And then it's, it, I think it's very disruptive to actually building a business. It takes a ton of time. So yeah, good point. And I'm curious, how do you work with that list of investors that you're building? Like, do you reach out to them? Like, do you send them quarterly updates saying like, hey, this is what we've done. This is our revenue growth. Yeah. Or so you were doing that. 
Well, we did that for our investors. So our, our, in our first round, we did a monthly, monthly investor update. And exactly like you were talking about, we would talk about, we would start off with the KPIs, which is our revenue, how many drivers we had. We had a few things that were for our business. We would talk about the good things that happened in the past month, the bad things that happened in the past month. And then we would leave any asks that we had to the investor at the end. Uh, we did that every month on the first of every month, exactly. So we said that to our investors, the people who already had put money in and, and they were they were shareholders. We didn't send it to future investors for people who had reached out and said that they were interested. We just kept them on a list. So we had, I don't know if you know Airtable, but we kept an Airtable base of all the people who had reached out and, and their emails. So we were ready when we decided to to fundraise, we could email all those people saying, hey, we're we're raising money now. This is where we are. This is why we need money and give them the story. Right. So do you think it would be a better idea of, you know, keeping those potential investors in the loop as well? So saying them quarterly updates. You could. Um, I think some people do this. This is a common thing people do. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. We never did it because we our investor updates were very detailed. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to give that much detail to outside investors, especially because we had competitors and we didn't want um, a lot, so VCs, they're in the business of investing in companies. So they probably had talked to our competitor or they knew our competitor or something. So we didn't want that information to be out there in the world. It could be forwarded to someone. We didn't want to see it. And so that's why we, we kept it pretty close. Uh, and that's, that's because we kept, we did monthly emails. We, we made them very detailed because it was for our investor base. Another version of this could have been, you could have a monthly email that is really detailed with your investor base. And then you have a quarterly version, which is high level, not as detailed. You send out to the broader group. I think that would have worked. We never did it because um, we, I mean, it was a lot of, we were already writing one a month. We weren't going to write another one a quarter. And then we were around for quarter and a half. So we didn't have a lot of quarters to, to, write, to write about. But, right. but I, I suspect that would have worked. Yeah, I, that's that's my personal advice. You know, those people who showed at least some interest, uh, definitely send them those quarterly updates. You know, I personally got yeah got connected to a company because they sent another investor a quarterly update and she forwarded that to me. So it's like, there might be a long chain that might lead to something helpful. So definitely, you know, take this extra few hours to, to build that, you know, quarterly support. Um, but here we're moving on to, I want to close this episode with something, you know, positive. So one thing that, do you remember something like really good about the, your fundraising process? So maybe like, the first check you got from an investor and you're like, yeah, or something, yeah. something else that was like really memorable and something positive, you know? I mean, there's, um, there's a few things. One of the things is that when it finally, everything closes, it's a very, very, like the, the money is in your bank account, the papers are signed. It's an amazing feeling because for every fundraising process, every deal, anything like this that happens, there's always a pandemonium right before it closes like the week before or the few days before somebody wants to pull out. Somebody's not sure. Um, somebody has last minute questions. Somebody new wants to come in. There's always craziness that happens right before these things get closed. And so you're just, you're basically on the phone and on email 24 seven and you're sort of anxious. You just, you want everything to come together and you want it to be done. So when that happens, very tranquil moment, the money's in your bank account, papers are signed. You can just stop focusing on this and you can, you can go back to building. That's a great feeling. So I have that feeling when we raise money. Also had the feeling when we were acquired, because when you're 
Good acquisition, it's, it's, it's the same thing. You know, there's a big process and eventually you, you need to get to signatures, but it takes a while to get there at the last minute. There's all sorts of things that happen. So when it finally closes, it's a great feeling. It's one of the best feelings. That's really cool and that's really positive. So thanks for that. And we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So what's that one thing that you would like the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Listener to do, hmm, let's see. So one is you should go to, to our website, halocars.co. Um, you can learn about our, our company if you're an advertiser and you're interested in advertising with us, you should reach out. Uh, we have a great product. I think it'll work great for your brand. Um, other thing, you can follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, I don't tweet as much, but I'm starting to. So <laughs> if anybody wants to interact with me, follow me. I'm, I'm at Kinan H. Sala. So first name, H, and then my last name. Uh, you can find me there. All right. I will definitely include the link to Hello Cars in the description of this episode and also Ken's Twitter. And my last question here would be, why do you start tweeting right now? So is it for networking purposes or is it because you actually like Twitter? So I've always, I've used Twitter for a long time, but I've just been reading. And the reason why I've used Twitter for maybe four years now, the reason why is I've learned a ton from Twitter. Twitter has been just incredible resource for me for learning about startups, about VC, about all sorts of things. And because what I liked about it is people would give, they would get to talk about, talk about their experiences, give their advice. And these were people who are, had a lot of experience and were successful and I could learn from them. So now that I have some experience and I think I have good advice to share, um, I feel it's sort of like, it's the right thing to do for me to share my experience to new people and go full cycle. Instead of just being the one reading from Twitter, I wanna start contributing to other people. Definitely nice. That's a nice move. That's very generous, very startup minded. So uh, nice, nice work there. I'll definitely include that in the description of this episode. And my personal call to action would be Go to the description of this episode as usually I'll include a bunch of useful links for you, links that Ken mentioned. And also, also this is actually our first video and audio podcast that we're recording today. So if you're curious to see how it will look like, uh, I'll include the link to our YouTube recording as well. So take a look at it.